The mission of the U.S. Army is to fight and win our nation's wars. That, however, is not the only task we ask the Army to perform in potentially hostile environments. The use of force, apart from armed conflict, is the subject of this episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. Welcome to Episode 79 of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. I'm Chris Mayer, retired U.S. Cavalry Colonel, former instructor of the U.S. Army's Command and General Staff College and the Naval War College. Now, I think of these podcasts as a kind of war college for everyone, not as in-depth as our national defense universities, but instead focused on what I think every citizen should understand about war, peace, and the gray area in between. Now, if you think these podcasts are worthwhile, please hit like and subscribe or follow and maybe leave a comment. These podcasts are not monetized or subsidized in any way, except maybe through the patience of my wife and the time I spend putting these together. In the previous two episodes, I talked about rules of engagement as a risk control over the use of force in combat. Rules of engagement define when and where military forces can initiate, continue, or must end combat. By its nature, combat takes place in conditions where the law of armed conflict, also called the international humanitarian law, is controlling. Armed conflict, however, isn't the only situation where military forces are used. Examples include military support to civil authority, humanitarian assistance missions, disaster relief and security operations outside of armed conflict. In these situations, international human rights law, local national law, and status of forces agreements are controlling. In this different legal context, we need a different set of rules governing the use of force. Appropriately enough, these are called Rules for the Use of Force, or RUF. Instead of describing when military forces can initiate combat, rules for the use of force specify when and how force may be used to protect personnel and property from unlawful attack in accordance with existing civilian law. Unlike ROE, RUF is always restrictive in nature with the intent of applying only that force which is necessary to protect persons and property and applied in a way that is reasonable in intensity, duration, and magnitude. Here is an example of what might be part of an RUF for armed forces supporting a humanitarian relief mission. The use of non-deadly force to protect humanitarian supplies is permitted. The use of deadly force to protect humanitarian supplies is prohibited. Although almost all governments and their military forces agree on what the law of armed conflict is, with some disagreement about what it means in practice, no two nations have exactly the same rules for the use of force in self-defense, the defense of others, and the protection of property. For example, although every country I know of requires a reasonable warning of some sort before using force, what this warning may be is often very different. Further, some countries require a warning shot before firing to hit a person or vehicle. Other countries, including the United States, forbid warning shots. There's a lot of debate on this issue, which I won't go into here, but I'll just say that I agree with the U.S. position. Some countries require shoot to wound, and only if that is ineffective, then shoot to kill. Other countries forbid attempts at wounding shots as dangerous to bystanders as well as the military or law enforcement personnel themselves. This makes standardized rules of force in any deployment outside of the home country nearly impossible. To make things even more complex, 
The term RUF is uncommon outside of the U.S. military. Most countries use the term ROE even when describing the more restrictive use of force in a human rights law environment. In the earlier episode, Introducing ROE, I said that the term ROE was itself a U.S. construct developed in the early 1960s. It only gradually spread to NATO and then other countries, coming into use in the UN only during the Somalia operations in the early 1990s. Nevertheless, if the term RUF is only slowly gaining acceptance outside of the U.S. military, the principles for constructing use of force in a peacetime or human rights law environment are fairly common, whether or not a country calls them ROE or RUF. Now, to keep the distinction clear between the use of force in a law of war versus a human rights law environment, I will use the term RUF. As you might imagine, developing RUF is even more complex than ROE. Not only does RUF need to support mission accomplishment while complying with national law, it also has to conform with local national law, any relevant agreements with the host nation, and must consider multinational rules, such as when conducting operations as part of a United Nations mission. Further, there may be circumstances where local national law may allow use of force that exceeds that of the assisting state, and in some cases, such as UN peacekeeping, UN rules may require levels of force prohibited in national ROE, such as those in the U.S. Standing Rules for the Use of Force. In the case of U.S. support to domestic emergencies, the RUF must consider state and local laws and whether the military use of force can mirror rules governing police use of force or must abide by lower levels of authorization. Although not universal, there are some overarching principles for the use of force in a human rights law environment. To begin, rules for the use of force are rules issued by competent authority. For the armed forces, these would be the same authorities that issue ROE. Next, use of force must be defensive. That is, it is only authorized in self-defense, the defense of others, and to protect property. Then, any use of force must be necessary and reasonable. That is, the use of force must be necessary to protect persons or property and, as I said earlier, the force used must be reasonable in intensity, duration, and magnitude. Now, here's an extreme example of what that means. Although it may require some measure of force to stop or apprehend someone from spray-painting graffiti, it would be unreasonable or disproportionate to use deadly force to do so. This idea of proportionality is fundamentally different than the notion of proportionality in the law of war. This requirement for necessary and reasonable leads to a generally common notion of escalation of force or only using the minimum force necessary, preferably using some sort of continuum of force. For example, beginning with a display such as presence or signage, then warnings, followed by application of non-deadly force, then if the threat continues, deadly force, all while being able to scale down as the threat reduces. As I hope you can see from these common elements, RUF and ROE are very different. Combat could not be successful under an RUF construct, and outside of armed conflict, using ROE would be inappropriate and lead to unnecessary death and destruction. So how, then, do we go about developing an RUF? For the U.S. Armed Forces, the RUF developmental process is described in Appendix C of Joint Publication 3-28, Defense Support of Civil Authorities. 
The role of legal advisors is even more important in developing RUF than it is in ROE, and they're essential in ROE. The legal advisors must be proficient in all aspects of the law applicable to the operational context, military law, international law, and civilian, also called municipal law, of the country or state in which the military is operating. Apart from that, the same documents that I cited in the ROE episodes are also useful in developing RUF. Both the San Remo Handbook on ROE and the Newport Rules of Engagement Handbook have specific sections on rules that can be used in military operations outside of armed conflict, such as military support to civil authorities, humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, and search and rescue. For U.S. military forces, the standing rules for the use of force can be found in two documents, the first being the same joint staff document I mentioned in the previous two episodes, it's even called Standing Rules of Engagement slash Standing Rules for the Use of Force. The second is DOD Directive 5210.56, Arming and the Use of Force. The Newport or San Remo ROE handbooks could be used to request mission or context-specific changes to the standing rules for the use of force or developing subordinate commander RUF. Any RUF should begin with the overarching principles, such as Nothing in this RUF impedes the inherent right of individual and unit self-defense, and use of force must be limited to that which is necessary and reasonable given the totality of the circumstances, along with guidance on escalation and de-escalation of force. Specific rules would follow, beginning with rules about self-defense, unit self-defense, and the defense of others. Examples, which I drew from the U.S. Standing Rules and the San Remo Handbook, might be Use of force, up to and including deadly force, is authorized in defense of civilians and coalition force members from criminal attack. Now, alternatively, there could be a rule that says, use of force for the defense of local national civilians is prohibited. Another might be, use of force, up to and including the use of deadly force, is authorized to prevent the theft or sabotage of inherently dangerous property. This then should specify what that inherently dangerous property is, such as arms and ammunitions. Another, use of deadly force to protect other U.S. military property is prohibited. Other mission-specific rules might include authorization for certain types of weapons, the use of obstacles, escalation of force measures, search and detention, and so on. Like ROE, RUF can be dynamic, changing as the threat or political situation changes. Commanders and political leaders must also be ready for potential circumstances where RUF might transition to ROE. Once drafted, military forces must undergo training in how to understand and properly respond to situations where force may be used. The primary mission of military force is combat, and military training is focused on that primary mission. This instills in soldiers and other members of the armed forces a permissive mindset in the use of force to accomplish the mission and defend themselves and other friendly forces. RUF is almost the opposite of that, severely restricting the use of force. There's a well-known story of a Marine patrol working with civilian police during the Los Angeles riots in 1992. While responding to a shooting incident, a policeman asked the Marine patrol to cover him as he crossed the street. As the policeman rounded the corner of his vehicle, the Marines fired 200 rounds into the building where the shooter was located. Amazingly, no one was hurt. There's a big difference between cover me in a combat situation and cover me in a police situation. 
training must emphasize the difference between those regimes. Another critical consideration is that RUF can be far more complex than ROE. Even small mistakes can lead to deaths of military personnel, those they intend to protect, or unfortunate deaths of innocent civilians. This training should include tabletop exercises, classroom instruction, and whenever possible, live training with simulated munitions. Training should include legal experts, military officials, and security forces of the state being assisted by the military forces. Many years ago, while I was attending senior-level anti-terrorism and force protection training, we were told about the attack on the USS Cole in Yemen. In the debriefing with Yemeni authorities, the U.S. was asked why we didn't shoot the terrorist's boat after it crossed the restricted line. The Yemeni officials said that that was why the ship was stationed so far away from other vessels, so that we could use whatever force was necessary to protect the ship. A tabletop force protection exercise with those Yemeni officials before moving into port may have saved many lives. So what does this mean to you? First, anytime we send our military forces into a potentially hazardous situation, there is the potential that they must use force. In most cases, the authority to use force is very restricted. In some, even many cases, the authorization for military personnel to use force under RUF may not be very different than the limits of your own use of force in self-defense and the defense of your family. Next, this may mean that the risk to our soldiers, sailors, and airmen may be just as great as in armed conflict. Then, soldiers are not police. They do not have the training that police have. They have the training and mindset of warriors. In everything, remember, mistakes will be made. We should demand that those who represent us in government are not too quick to offer up military support. Rather, we must demand that when deployed, they have the capability, the ability, the support, and the training to accomplish the mission with known and acceptable risk to life and property. Before I close, I'm going to ask again that if you got something out of this, if you think this information is worthwhile, please hit like, subscribe, or follow. Now, one last thing. These last three episodes dealt with the use of force by military personnel. But soldiers, marines, sailors, and airmen are not the only people conducting these force protection type missions. Very often, the United States and some of our partner nations use private security companies to protect personnel and property. What's more, most of these personnel working in hazardous regions may not be working for our armed forces or that of any partner military. The rules governing their use of force is the subject for the next episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare.